Welcome to the Real Top Podcast, where we meet with real top entrepreneurs from around the globe to discuss what motivates them, who inspired them, and so much more. Here's your host, Nick Zucales. Hey, Real Top Nation, we've got another truly real top entrepreneur on the show today. If you've ever met this man in any capacity, you'll quickly realize why he's had so much success. He's energetic, charismatic, and is willing to follow through on his vision. Welcome to the Real Top Podcast. My name is Nick Tsugalis, and in today's episode, we will be spending some time with Gosa Ligris. Gosa is a lifelong entrepreneur and the founder of Ligris Companies, a collection of professional services, real estate and consulting firms with offices in Boston, Newton, and Wellesley, Massachusetts. Under his leadership, Ligris has grown to become one of the largest transactional firms in Massachusetts while expanding title operations along the East Coast. As of recent, Gosa has taken his real estate career to the next level and has co-founded Savvy, uh, an absolutely amazing company that is revolutionizing the real estate industry nationwide and I'm sure worldwide. Guys, welcome. Costa Ligris, Costa, say what's up to the real top nation, man. Hey, Nick, thanks for having me. Um, uh, appreciate it. And uh, hello to the real top nation. So the first question for Costa is, Costa, what's going on? in Costa's world today. What's happening in your world today? What's new with you? Uh, well, you know, just a, a typical Tuesday after a Patriots holiday, um, which is like a, you know, as, as some of you know, locally in Boston is like a Boston holiday. Um, you know, got up this morning, went and got my nose scraped for COVID. Um, just a typical, just an average Tuesday. Um, getting tested twice a week to make sure I don't have COVID. But um, what's happening? Well, you know, there's a lot happening. You know, it's an interesting time, uh, you know, globally. There's a lot of cool things happening. Uh, innovation is always sparked through, you know, periods of crisis, I think. And so, you know, we're living, uh, I think, what's the Chinese proverb? May you live during interesting times. Uh, I think you can go ahead and check that box off for all of us. We're living through some very uh, interesting times, watching, you know, really what's um you know, how many, uh, several years, for years, I listened to people talking about how this is it, interest rates, they're going to go, you know, sky high to the moon, right? And uh, here we are now dealing with really relatively historic, historically low interest rates coming out of 2020 with a, uh, a predominant refi boom and now a very interesting housing market in a lot of the urban markets. Um, but what's happened in my world is really I've, you know, moved from professional services to uh, co-founding and building now and scaling a technology company, which... Um, is obviously very different than what I did for the first 20 years of my professional career. I'd say here in, um, here in, here in Boston, especially in the real estate community, I think you're somewhat of a, kind of a man of mystery. People saw this guy build this. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is the truth. You, you built this amazing law firm, this practice. I mean, the best of the best. And then you went ahead and you went one step further where a lot of guys wouldn't. And you went ahead and you went to MIT. You, you then started this this new tech venture. What 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 possessed you to take on this challenge? Because this doesn't seem like it's uh, this doesn't seem easy. No, it's not. I mean, that, that it is certainly true that I went from um, you know a relatively uh, comfortable comfortable professional setup in that I sort of knew what I what my days looked like. Uh, you know, yes, you know, real estate transactions always have uh, a little bit of an element and a flair of 
you know, some new crisis du jour that comes up and <laughs> some new problem that you need to, to solve for. Uh, and going from that to now working really uh, pretty crazy hours. Um, it's really remarkable. Um, but the, the reality is that I'm just not somebody who's sort of comfortable with the status quo. And for me, there was an opportunity here to challenge myself uh, professionally, but also to have a, you know, uh, some influence, uh, uh, regardless of how minor it may be, in, toward, in sort of shaping what the future of, uh, you know, transactions and banking looks like. And to me, that was compelling. You know, Gota, I, I want to find out more about Savvy, and I think the world needs to know more about it. But before we do that, I want to dive into, uh, I want to dive into your brain. I want to go into some of the habits that help you as an entrepreneur, obviously, you know, and I, and I follow you on Instagram. We're friends as well. I'm part of your circle, but there are certain things that you do, certain habitual things that sort of prime the mind, the body, and the soul. And it seems like you, you've got these good habits in place. So I have a few questions for you. And this is more on a personal level. What are the first couple of hours of, of your day look like as this entrepreneur? Yeah. Uh, Sure. Yeah, no. So, um, you know, it's, it's probably no secret to you knowing me that, uh, I'm pretty connected all the time. And so, uh, the you first, few, <laughs> uh, the first few hours of my day, uh, are a combination of several things, right? So it's, uh, I usually look at my calendar, uh, before, uh, I wrap the day up. And so I want to know what tomorrow looks like. So that means like last night I knew what today looked like. Right. And we even connected about, about this episode in the podcast. And so I'm looking at sort of what is going on today and what I need to know. Uh, when I get up in the morning, I'm gonna check my email. Uh, I'm gonna check to see, you know, uh, a lot of people know like I carry two devices. So I have a personal cell phone, I have a work cell phone. Um, I'm gonna look at my personal cell phone first to make sure like everything is copacetic and everything is under control in the personal world and there's no family uh, issues or problems that I need to be aware of. Um, it allows me to be able to separate that framework a little bit. Um, I, uh, a lot of people don't, don't know this about me, but I'm, uh, pretty obsessed with coffee. Um, and so I make my own coffee. So I'll brew my own coffee, pour over, uh, I grind my own beans in the morning. And so that is a part of like my morning ritual where I sort of start to, you know, I make my coffee and sort of reflect on what, what's going on for the day. Uh, depending on the day, I either work out in the morning or I work out in the afternoon. Um, you know, I'm, I'm part of the Peloton mafia now. Uh, yesterday was actually my one year uh, anniversary on the Peloton, 52 consecutive weeks. Um, Holy smokes. So that was my streak. Yeah. Um, and so I either will ride in the morning or do a workout in the morning or, or if depending on what's going on in the morning, um, punt until, uh, on, until later that afternoon. So it's really schedule dependent, but, um, I try to make some time, uh, to just sort of, uh, uh, create some space in my head and have some mindfulness there's, uh, you know, I, I, I try to practice as much meditation as I possibly can fit into my schedule, uh, even, even as little as seven minutes. Um, and so if I can have like six or seven minutes where I can just sort of reflect and, um, and uh, do some diaphragmatic breathing or just sort of like prep myself or like what's in store for the day. There's also an old expression that says, you know, everyone needs to meditate for like, uh, you know, 20 minutes a day or something like that, unless you don't have the time, in which case you should do it for an hour. Um, and so, you know, I try to live true to that, which is if you're not being proactive about some of these things, like taking care of yourself, both, you know, physically, but also mentally, um, it catches up on you and then you have to be reactive to it. And I feel that that's a, that's a dangerous situation. So. 
Um, are you an early riser? Are you a 5 a.m. guy? Are you a 4 a.m. guy like the Jocko Williams guy? Like, what's your what's your start time? Yeah, so um, your sleep has uh, sleep is super important, but it can be fairly irregular for me depending on what's going on. If I wake up um, in the middle of the night, uh, my head is like my brain is already racing. And so, you know, somebody had said to me, oh, you should keep a journal next to your bed so that when you have ideas or stuff that you, you know, you don't forget about it. And so I did that for a while. And then I realized that having the journal next to me on the nightstand was actually a bad idea because then you wake up and you're like, oh, I have the journal. Like I can start writing fucking ideas down. You can't go back to sleep. So, uh, so I have physically moved the journal into my, uh, my office and study. And so I keep it away from me. Uh, so I try to be really good about trying to get some sleep. Uh, there are some days that are better than others. If I wake up at 4 a.m. or later, uh, I just, I call it quits and I, I, I get the day started. Uh, you get the, okay. yeah, yeah, because then you're just going to be groggy if you just try to sneak in an extra hour. Uh, if I wake up before 4 a.m., um, I, I try to get a little bit more sleep. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's really hard. I, I feel like, you know, I'm so excited about the stuff that we're doing and I know we're going to touch upon that that, uh, you know, sleep is super important for me and it helps me manage my stress and my anxiety and, and balance me. But at the same time, I'm so excited about the stuff that we're doing that I feel that you know, every minute I'm awake and I can be contributing towards, you know, what we're doing is also impactful. Let's, let's jump into what you're doing right now. You know, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on you personally, but you know what? I, you know, a big part of you is this company right now. And I think just like a lot of entrepreneurs that when you start something, you're in a new venture, it, it becomes a part of you. It's your, it's your baby. So let's talk, let's talk about your newborn. Let's talk about Stavi and tell, take us, take, take the listeners to, you know, what, let's start with what Stavi is. If you could tell us about this platform, about this technology, just break down for a, a, a dummy like me, how does this work and what is it all about? Yeah. So, um, uh, far for your far cry from a dummy, but, um, anyway, um, you mark a marketing guru, I would say, but, uh, so, so, you know, at its core, you know, Stavi was originally, there was a Genesis, uh, of an idea here that the way that people are going to buy homes or sign their documents for closings, uh, wasn't going to stay the same, you know, going to somebody's office or a County registry and, you know, sitting in a basement and signing your name 150 times, you know, clearly the world that will evolve from that. You know, we have, we're flying helicopters on Mars, um, but at the same time, like we're, you know, we're still trying to figure out how to get a closing done uh, uh, without 150 pages of paper. And so we knew that there was gonna be some change there. Now, what we didn't know was the impact of some of the technology and, and what the world was gonna uh, really deal with with COVID and how that's really help, helped us, you know, narrow, uh, you know, get narrowly focused around some of the industries that we're, we're working in and, and within, but at the same time also open the aperture in terms of the opportunities that exist. So when people ask me like, what is the, what does Stabby do? You know, what are you guys all about? You know, sort of like a lot, a lot of the big picture is, you know, we build technology to empower uh, transactions that have traditionally been in-person or heavily paper-based to move towards digital. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really a suite of tools that, um, and, you know, I'm just using the, these as examples because people will appreciate them, but uh, we don't use any of these products. All of the technology is technology that we've built here uh, is if you think of all the tools of e-signing platforms like DocuSign or Adobe e-sign or HelloSign, uh, Zoom or Google Hangouts functionality, where we can do what we're doing here today 
um, and communicate in real time. And then identity solutions. How do I know that you are really, you know, Nikitas um, uh, appearing on the other side of this, uh, on this camera when I don't personally know you? If you put all those types of tools and solutions into a blender and add your favorite oat milk or almond milk, uh, the smoothie that comes out is Staffy. And so, you know, uh, today is actually an interesting day to have this podcast. It is, um, it is a historic day for us in that when we started this journey, we really were focused around building technology for loan origination. I know that you have, uh, you know, uh, you have a lot of experience in mortgage lending. And so, you know, we looked at how can we bring these tools so that you can buy a home or refinance a home, you know, uh, without, without having to go meet somebody in person or in states that don't allow full digital yet. We can talk about that. Taking that 45 minute experience in person down to about 10 minutes. Um, and, and, but what's historic about today is uh, we are one of the first remote online notary platforms to focus uh, our products also on loan servicing. And so today, um, through our partner at Flagstar Bank, um, you know, we're starting to do loan modifications online. So these are, you know, people that have been impacted by COVID or other, you know, financial uh, issues that need to modify their loan. Uh, today, we, we go live in, uh, in Michigan, Texas, and Florida, providing those services fully digitally online. So, in, in, you know, in a prior world, the bank would send the consumer a package with all these little post-it notes. They got to go out and find their own notary, um, get it all done, signed, sent back to the bank. The bank has to countersign it, scan it, record it. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. 20 to 30 days, we've brought that down to under 48 hours. I mean, I remember 2008, 2009, as the, as the real estate market then was collapsing and now, I remember in my previous business dealing with people going through this, you know, specifically this loan modification process. And a big part of the issue is just literally gathering up documents, organizing it in one place and trying to get it to the lender in a way where the lender could actually open up a file and, and go through it and somehow make a decision. That, that alone, that barrier of entry was so high that so many people just said, kind of, F it. I'm not even dealing with this. And they were walking away from home. So the ability for you to bridge that with technology, I mean, I think you're going to help a lot of people save their homes. So this is this is a pretty big deal right now. And congratulations. I mean, um, I was really thinking that Savvy was just going to be closing the loan, doing the deal at the closing, and every everyone's happy and not having to go to a conference room somewhere, and that's it. And the fact that you're able to deal with the serving, servicing side, I think a lot of us are probably didn't expect that or even think there was a need for that. So that's that's pretty amazing in these times. Yeah, it's interesting that you touch upon this, but basically, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize or don't know that um, there is underwriting associated with a modification. It's not just that, you, you know, you stop paying your mortgage or you call the lender or your bank and say, hey, like, I'm struggling, I'm having trouble. They actually have to underwrite the option because they can't just modify you and punt it for 60 days where you're going to have a problem again, right? And so, you know, Fannie and Freddie have these things called waterfalls where they look at both retention and non-retention options. Obviously, you no, know, nobody wants to talk about non-retention options. They're the worst case scenario. They're, uh, you know, either foreclosures or deed in lieu uh, and things of that nature. But you obviously need to be able to set people up so that, uh, you know, as you said, you were helping people put together all these artifacts and information so that they could apply for modification, it is underwritten, no different really. I mean, obviously if a very different criteria and a different perspective and different requirements, but it is still underwriting in the sense that you're underwriting to see whether or not somebody qualifies for modification. Well, Seth, I may ask, you know, what was the, um, 
what was the what was the vibe around the investment community around even people that you had to sell the service to and present it to pre-COVID versus versus right you know right now was there a big difference was there like a a, a contrast I'm going to assume so but maybe you can take us through how you know this pandemic has changed the way people are looking at technologies like this. Yeah, so you know it's a double-edged sword, and um, it's it's one of those things and. Uh, it's one of those things where I think, you know, the challenge here is that this pandemic has made all of the things that we're building more relevant than ever. But at the same time, you know, if you think about this from the perspective of lenders and banks and how long it typically takes them, um, you know, to adapt and purchase technology, there are challenges associated with that. And the pandemic has certainly made that uh, a little bit more difficult in that, you're asking them to allocate resources to look at the technology, look at the current state of workflow uh, and you know what the you know, proposed state of workflow is, assess you as a vendor, do their security and due diligence on you, you know, and then have to put the resources internally to train, implement, deploy. Uh, you know, there is there's there's a process around that. And uh, and I think people don't realize that with historically low interest rates, with PPP loans. With borrowers struggling on the commercial side, on the residential side, with a whole host of other you know, credit facilities that, that banks offer, um, stress testing in the beginning to figure out like how bad can things get with this pandemic and what does that mean for our organization? Um, all of those things together are sort of a perfect, you know, they're, they're, it's a perfect recipe for slowing things down because, um, you know, we talk a lot about this here at Stavia where technology companies sometimes you have to teach your customers how to buy your technology. Okay. Uh, and that is, is something that I think, you know, people don't always, it just seems like, well, this is great. These tools are awesome. They're going to save money, increase transparency, increase security, uh, make it easier. But, you know, the, the, the challenge I think, especially in the, in the mortgage industry is the mortgage industry very often is either in one of two modes, very binary, it's feast or famine. Right. And when it's really, really busy, we don't have time to help ourselves. All we think about is, how do we get as much of this close as possible? When things slow down, we immediately freak out and like, oh my God, it's gonna be slow forever. Um, and we're in trouble and like, what's gonna happen? How are we gonna pay our bills? And, uh, and that applies, I think, to realtors, to loan originators, to you know, title and settlement companies, everyone in the food chain, um, where we have this you know, uh, reaction because it's human nature to think of like worst case scenario. <laughs> and we see it in marketing a lot where companies will reach out to us and they'll say, I need to be doing marketing. And I'm like, why do you need to do it right now? Why are you reactive today? What were you doing last year? I was busy. I was killing it. Maybe you should have been doing it then. Maybe you should have been proactive. Um, and yeah. now you're, now you're being reactive and now it's just going to be that much more difficult and you're going to be, you know, kind of up against the corner. You're going to, cortisol is going to be rushing through your, through your blood and you're going to be stressed out and you're not going to be able to get creative and make great decisions and, and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, it's a snowball effect. Um, Gosa with uh, with Stavi. Uh, when when did you guys actually start the company? When, when was your when was your start date, and how has it evolved in terms of like the number of people you you started with? Well, what did the team look like then, and and what does the team look like now? 
Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, technically the company started when we created the company, which was uh, at the very, very end of December in 2018. But really, the company didn't start really coming together until 2019 when uh, my co-founder, Josh, and I. Uh, so Josh and I met at, at, at Sloan. Um, we were both uh, in business school together. Josh's background is all technology. He's been writing code since he was 10. Um, his background is in cybersecurity, fraud and abuse. So um, he, had, he had stood up the computer crimes division of the Maryland State Police. He grew up and down in Maryland. Uh, and then he stood up the Data Privacy Information Protection Office of the Internal Revenue Service. Um, and then was uh, and then moved into technology into the private sector and was the chief information security officer of a company uh, called Rapid Seven. Which, uh, if you've been to the you know the new Boston Garden, if you will, like the front of it, you'll see they're they've got a massive presence in Boston. They're an iconic cybersecurity company, and he ran um, security uh, for them. And so. You know, Josh and I uh, were chatting a little bit about what the current status uh, of the world looked like back in um, uh, in 2019 when uh, when I was sort of pinging and trying to find somebody to come on this journey and bring the technical side of uh, of the equation to uh, to, to the company. And uh, in a traditional uh, you know normal world where there isn't a pandemic, uh, you know, my brother whole has a big Christmas Eve party. Uh, I think I've seen you there a couple of times. So I invited Josh and uh, he came, he was there with his kids and we were just sort of hanging out in the kitchen talking. And what was interesting was he had recently bought a home and, uh, and you know, he talks a lot about this, which was the process from when he had bought his last home before, not only had it not gotten better, not only had it not stayed the same, <laughs> he actually thought it had gotten worse. And mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, where you see those types of opportunity, um, you know, I started sort of pushing him on like, well, you can be part of the solution, right? And so um, he was very happy. He was at the time the chief information security officer of a, a company called DigitalOcean that recently went public. And, um, but at the same time, like, you know, if you're entrepreneurial and you see the opportunity, uh, it's like you said about marketing, like when's the right time to, to start marketing? When's the right time to start a company? Uh, when's the right time to, to plant a tree? Yesterday. Um, but, uh, you know, the second best time is today. <laughs> so, um, and so I was able to convince him to come and, uh, and start this. And so 2019 was really a lot of time spending, um, you know, you know, us looking at each other sort of, you know, in our, in our temporary office in Kendall square, I was still doing some mentoring at the trust center, which I do now at, at MIT and, um, and doing some you know, teaching and helping with the accelerator. And, you know, Josh and I sort of looking at each other, talking to people, doing a, just a ton of primary market research. You know, how does this impact lenders? How does this impact title insurance companies? How does this impact the brokers? What do the consumers think? What do the consumers want? And as you can imagine, uh, what we were finding out in the conversation we were having in 2019 versus the state of the world today in 2021, very different. Very different. And so the team didn't really come together, honestly, until the fall of 2019 is when we started putting together uh, and hiring our, our uh, uh, some of our first engineering resources. How did you um, begin to organize a team this way? I mean, I mean, um, coming up with the team structure in a marketing company or financial services company or a law firm, I mean, there are literally templates out there that you can pull up. I mean, you can Google, you know, uh, uh, how, to, how, to, how to create a roster, right? and how to build out a team. How do you build out a team for something like this? How did you know who, you know, what, you know, what role, what roles you needed to fill? Like, how do you begin to do that in something like this? Because this is a disruptive business. Like, I can't assume there's a template for this. You, is it safe to say you guys are creating it from scratch? 
Yeah. So, you know, obviously for us, it was, we were very engineering heavy in the beginning. We hired uh, engineering talent. And so what that means is, you know, when you're trying to put this thing together, you look, and then of course there's the, you know, there's the subcategory of that, which is there are backend engineers, there are front end engineers, there are full stack engineers. Um, and so we looked for people that had, uh, that were the right culture fit, that understood the vision of what we were trying to build, understood that they had to be willing to be able to pivot, uh, take feedback, work off of it quickly. Um, and so some of our early hires were engineers that we met through the ecosystem uh, in greater Boston. Uh, you know, Josh and I have always been excited about building, uh, you know, a technology company based in Boston, a true like, you know, Boston based, Boston born and bred, you know, uh, a company. And we are still living true to that, despite the fact that COVID has obviously uh, accelerated uh, some remote hires and some of the other verticals. Uh, the majority of our engineering and product team is still based in Boston. Um, you know, how do you do that? You know, for us, it's pretty simple in that, you know, Josh has built larger technical teams at, at larger technology companies and organizations. And so, you know, uh, there was a lot of conversation around, okay, well, when is our first product hire for us? We hired user experience and design early because we feel that it's really important that software is easy to use. Uh, you know, Elon Musk has famously said, and it's on the wall here at, at Stavi that, if your product requires a user's manual, it's already broken. Um, and, and we believe in that, right? And so we wanna make sure that this technology that we're building is intuitive, is easy to use, easy to understand. Um, but for us, ultimately it really revolves around culture. And so as we've continued to scale the team, you asked like, we, there were like four of us, four or five of us pre-pandemic. I think we just hired 30 something. I don't, I, I don't even know now. Uh, we actually had our first engineering hire this week without Josh and I interviewing this person, which is an interesting sort of, you know, um, you know, place to land because now we have people that we trust that, um, that, and there's a process around that, but we're really obsessed with building culture and, you know, the old uh, saying, which I'm sure you read and heard, you know, culture eats strategy for, for breakfast uh, is true. And so if you hire people that understand what the mission is, that uh, respect each other and you build an environment where people come with different opinions, are curious, are not afraid to you know, ask hard questions, uh, are, are brave. Um, you, you build basically an ecosystem that allows smart people to come together and experiment and ask the right questions uh, and build a process that, you know, um, that builds something special. And that's what we're working on. So. With that, with that type of culture, do you invite your your team, your employees, your staff to to challenge you on things? Is that is that an is, is there an open door to hey, I don't like what you're saying, Costa. Um, I think we should do it better, and we should do it this way. Is 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 there a form for that, or is it just that's just the general vibe of of savvy? No, I mean, it's not about having a specific forum. It's about the fact that Josh and I have said from day one that we have an open door policy. It's the fact that, you know, um, I think that you see a lot of companies that build a tremendous amount of middle management. And so, you know, how do you keep that, uh, you know, slim, right? So that it doesn't matter who you are uh, in an organization um, and what your function role is. Uh, you know, I want you to have a seat at the table and I want you to be able to, uh, it's, it's not about saying like, hey, Costa, you're wrong, but it's really about, hey, how can we look at this differently, right? And so uh, in the beginning, I think it's challenging for me as somebody who is a subject matter expert, but not an engineer to push back on like, you know, why can't we do this faster? How do we, you know, yeah, how do we, how do we do this, 
uh, without creating noise for the team. Um, and so it's really a function of just culturing uh, an atmosphere where uh, differing opinions uh, based on diversity and diversity, not necessarily just in the traditional sense of diversity and inclusion, but also diversity of experience, right? You know, coming from small companies, coming from larger companies, coming from uh, academia, coming from professional services. How do we, you know, that those are all very rich resources. How do you make sure that none of that is lost through the through a paradigm of hierarchy or bureaucracy or red tape or any of that bullshit, right? And the way you do that is you make it really, really comfortable for people to, um, to ask questions, to be curious, to experiment, um, to make mistakes, but you know, realize that that is part of the process, right? And that's how you, that's how you build is you do make mistakes. And I think when you leverage and you take a look at some of the input from some of the most innovative ecosystems in the world, you know, um, I think you know this. I've spent some time in Tel Aviv, and you take a look at sort of that you know, mentality in that ecosystem where it's a badge of honor. You know, when you when you make a mistake, you know that that is not the way to do it. It's not about you know preventing mistakes. It's about preventing the same mistakes over and over again, right? And so, how do you learn from a mistake? How do you learn from a from a failure? Um, that's what we want to really encourage. Why do you think so many business owners? struggle creating a culture like this. I mean, it's obviously, it, there's an obvious benefit for it. It obviously allows the business to grow much quicker and more creatively and do more dynamic. But why do you think so many business owners, and even I've struggled with this, struggle with this? What do you, do you think we're, we've got some preconceived notions of what a founder or CEO or, or a, you know, a entrepreneur is supposed to be, you know, we're the, we're the kings of the world. Like, what do you, what do you think happens to a lot of business owners and why does why this usually doesn't happen. It's, it's, it's new. Well, so I mean, the, the short answer is that not having a plan is a plan, right? Okay. And so if you go into your, if you go around the house right now and you shut all the thermostats off, the house will get to a temperature. <laughs> Great point. Uh, right. And so uh, if you decide that you don't want to have an influence in your culture, which means that you don't talk about it with people that you're recruiting it's not part of the, you know, and, and it's not just about talking the talk. You got to walk the walk, right? Which is you could talk about it when you're recruiting, but then you have to hold yourself and others accountable, which means that if you see somebody crossing those boundaries and being disrespectful or not allowing, um, you know, those elements of, you know, uh, safe experimentation and, and open, open mindedness and opinions to be shared. Uh, and, you know, you see that being blocked or you see clicks and obstacles or you know, uh, contrarian opinions to that philosophy of of uh, uh, you know starting to 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 create, and you do nothing about it, um, then you're promoting basically a culture to develop on its own, which is you know the temperature will get to whatever you know the exterior temperature is, and all the influences associated with the property, including but not limited to our windows open or doors open, insulation, like all this stuff. These are data points, and they affect culture. And so um, I think that you know. It's not just about having the conversation early, but having it often, making sure that you don't just say that you have an open door policy, but you actually have an open door policy. You don't just say that, you know, we're going to have uh, ask us anything's, you know, or an AMA ask me anything every couple of weeks and then cancel it because you're too busy because something else came up. If you cancel it because something important came up, then you have to make sure that you put it back on the schedule and that you answer these questions in a transparent way and that you're uh, not afraid to be vulnerable. And I think that business owners struggle with it really because of one of two things. Either you struggle with it because you're too busy doing everything else that you're not making time for it, 
right? Or you don't think that it's important. And the result is still the same. A culture will evolve. Culture will evolve. Uh, a culture will evolve and then you have to deal with it. And I think that, you know, some small business owners struggle with the fact that it's not a priority. Like I have a million other things that I got to worry about. I got to keep my customers happy. I got to make payroll. You know, I've got to deal with all these issues. You really want me to stop and pause and make sure that, you know, I take all this input from the team. I mean, the answer is you're talking to me and I'm giving you, men you know, mentorship advice. The answer is yes, because then you sit there and you scratch your head two years later, like, why is this person leaving? Like, I don't get it. Like they were so excited to come here. And so, uh, and that's part of the culture, which is, you know, we talk a lot about uh, why do people leave? You know, and one of the reasons people leave is that uh, they're no longer challenged, they're no longer excited about what's going on. And if you don't create opportunities for people to grow and develop within an organization organically, then they're going to go find that somewhere else. And so the best example of that is like, if you said to me five years ago that I was going to leave a place where my name was on the wall, I think you're crazy. But I, I had, you know, it had run its course. It wasn't challenging anymore for me, right? It wasn't stimulating me. And, uh, and so uh, hence why, uh, why I am where I am now. And the same applies here. If somebody comes along and they're an engineer, but they really want more customer interaction, then maybe they want to develop into a solutions engineer role or move into the you know, support team or success teams. If you don't have ability for people to do that internally within your organization, they will go and find that elsewhere. They're gone. Um, they're gone. Yeah. They're, they're out. Um, so let's say you were, you, you mentioned something earlier that I found was pretty interesting. You know, one of the, one of the, maybe, maybe not a challenge. I don't know if you use that exact word, but the, with, with savvy, you know, you're, you're a disruptor right now. I mean, for sure, there's no question about it. And that, that's, that's a, that's a given, but you're having to educate a lot of your clients on how to use your, 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 your software, how to use your solution. Actually, I should say that. Um, how much of, of how much of your marketing, how much of your um, outreach is, is educating and presenting something new to market that people just don't understand. It seems in so many businesses, we simply try to get in front of a very specific need. We're like a cog in the wheel. There's already kind of a business process that's happening. And we want to be part of that business process and get as much market share as possible. Where with what you're doing, it's so new. It's so fresh. People can't get their head wrapped around it. Um, and you're having to present to these banks this new solution, this way, this new way of doing business. How much of that are you doing, and, and how are you doing it? How are you getting in front of them? If they're, is it are they are they reaching out to you? Um, uh, are they reaching out to you for this solution? Or are you having to go out there and network the solution? Like, how are you getting this to market? I'm curious. Yeah. So, um, at the risk of sounding like a cheesy salesperson, like we don't we don't sell stuff. Right. And so um, that's the, sort of the first thing. Right. So we partner with our customers to solve problems. Um, and so when you think about it from that mind frame, that means a whole host of things. Right. So when Flagstar Bank uh, started talking to us, you know, we were anxious to put technology in front of origination, in front of, you know, mortgage fulfillment. Sure. But ultimately, what we found out from listening to them, because your customers will tell you everything that you want to hear, um, is, and by the way, like primary market research doesn't end when you close a deal, right? And I presume that's what, you know, uh, what it would be called in the sales cycle, right? Or when a contract is signed or in our, or in our lingo, like when a partnership, you know, is created, 
it doesn't end because you have to watch you know, what your customers need and how things have, you know, evolved. Uh, the biggest challenge always is the status quo. Now, the status quo doesn't always mean you're replacing a current partner or provider. Sometimes it means like you're literally replacing like a, a paper checklist <laughs> uh, in, the, in terms of technology. And so for us, it's a process that uh, starts with, you know, finding organizations that we think can benefit from our solutions, where there, there's value creation, and, and value creation comes in a lot of different forms. In some instances, we're saving the money. In other instances, we're creating a more transparent environment. In almost all instances, we're creating a more secure place to interact. Because um, we believe that email is a great tool, but it's dangerous, as you know, especially in the real estate world. And so, you know, what, it usually starts with a call where we really just talk to them about, okay, like, what are the things that you're doing today? Where do you already know that there's gaps and problems or, uh, you know, or, or, uh, or pain points in the process, right? And really understanding that. And sometimes we have these calls with, with banks or lenders or, or, or title and settlement companies. And we actually, I have been on a call where we, I have said, I have been on a call where we have collectively as a team said to, you know, the prospective partner, we're not the right fit for you. Like you're going to spend too much time, energy, and money implementing us. And you're not going to get enough, enough, you know, juice. That's not going to be worth the squeeze. And I can tell you right now that when you're talking to a financial institution and you look at their current workflow and their volume and how they're doing things, and you actually have that honest conversation with them about, look, like we're not going to try to sell you something you don't need. Um, it creates a, a level of trust that uh, is just really hard to, you know, hard to beat out. So as they scale, as they grow, as new pain points come up, you become the source um, that they come to to talk about, you know, strategies and solutions that may exist in, in, in terms of automating that or, or, or leveraging technology. Um, you know, small banks, for example, that have a very small, you know, residential uh, lending footprint. When you look at some of like the technology that we we've built, it may or may not make sense to them. And so, you know, I'm not going to try to sell somebody something that they don't need. Uh, it makes no sense. Then we're not a partner then we really are just another, you know, another uh, sales function within an organization. And so, um, you know, this, you've worked at various, you know, financial institutions in the past. Uh, the process may look the same in terms of like what you're selling and what that experience looks like, but how the sausage is made looks very differently from one organization to the other. And the types of tools that they've, you know, designed uh, either intrinsically, internally, or have bought, um, you know, to do that varies. And so we have to, we're not, you know, we're not a direct to consumer product. We're a B2B product and it takes time and takes discovery. And how do those conversations start? Um, they're relationships that I have through the industry. They are relationships that come about from institutions that have met with us and look at the product. Like, look, this may not be the right time for us, but I have a friend that's at this other organization and they could use you today. Um, so there's a lot of that that has occurred. You know, we've, uh, we announced earlier, uh, you know, later, uh, late last year that we, we partnered with Ellie Mae's Encompass platform um, to provide solutions to some of their partners. And so they find us through those, uh, those partnerships and relationships with their LOS platforms and other, and other providers that, um, that we work with. So I love what you said. I love what you said about trust in, in today's world, it seems to be the secret recipe. Just be absolutely the most brutally honest person and you will create a this magnetic 
force that that is it's it's just I mean in, from a, you know as as a sales guy I can tell you when I use that tactic and it's not even a tactic it's just how you want to be it makes you sleep better at night you're putting people in the right solutions those that don't they're not a good match you're you're sending them somewhere else and saying hey this is not a good fit um, something happens there's a certain there's a certain magnetic force you start to get where people want to be around you they want to they want to ride the the trust highway and along the way there are opportunities that will come um but it seems to be the absolute secret to success and you know for a lot of you younger entrepreneurs that are maybe watching this that's something you should really pull out of this conversation right now what Costa just mentioned um i can tell you if you can be brutally honest if you can sacrifice short term games for long term um trust and relationships and building your network and just being an overall good person, you're going to find that opportunities are going to open up for you so much. Um, and your world will change. Um, it's a little tough to do. Sometimes employers, sometimes businesses don't even advocate it, but you got to take that initiative yourself and protect your reputation. Rosa, I, I know your time is valuable. Um, you told me your hourly rate. So I know it. I know it. I know it really is. <laughs> I actually don't miss. I actually don't miss uh, counting minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you could take us, uh, you know, jump into the the time machine. You know, a year from now, two years, maybe even five years from now. And five years is a long time um, in, in today's world. Where is Savvy? Where are you? What, what, is, what does this look like? It's interesting. I was talking to somebody for a, uh, for a role on the, on the marketing team here at Stavi. Uh, and they asked me a really interesting question, which was like, how would you define success for this role a year from now? Right? You know, what would marketing success look like if you gave me this role a year from now? What would that look like? And the answer to that is the same answer that I'm going to give you now, which is, uh, and it goes back to the, the common theme here of, of culture and people. So um, there's one metric that I'm obsessed with, which is a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, five years from now. Uh, I want Stavi to be the place where everyone in Boston wants to work. Um, and uh, or, or not necessarily just Boston, maybe next year maybe the next couple of years as we continue to expand our footprint, um, we already are having like large presence of, uh, of some of our new hires and other, and other markets. Uh, but essentially when you build an organization uh, that everyone wants to be a part of, all the other KPIs fall into place because when engineers love what they do uh, and they're happy and they're in a place where they're building really meaningful things and understand why they're building it, uh, see the impact in the real world, Right. Uh, not just a talking point, but literally starting today, we are helping people keep their homes from the safety of their home. That's a pretty compelling uh, conversation. Right. And so your marketing team, your solutions team, your people team, like everyone understands that there is a mission and there is virtues here that they are aligned with. Uh, everything else falls into place because you get the best version of people when they are excited every day, when they hit the ground running. Uh, and they're doing what they're doing. And so that old sort of, you know, um, saying that uh, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. That's exactly the type of culture and environment that we look to build because that's where you get the best out of people. But, uh, I, um, I jot down my one year, two year, five year goals all the time. And I think I'm going to rewrite them. I, I took this down. I think this is remarkable. And you're right. All KPIs are going to fall into place. 
Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for being a great friend and a great mentor. I appreciate everything as always. Guys, Costa Ligris, Savvy, check them out. Costa, how can people contact you and the company? How can people be in your world, man? <laughs> um, so uh, Twitter is one way to be in my world. Uh, I tweet a lot and I retweet a lot of stuff about real estate and entrepreneurship and innovation, um, especially obviously fintech. So um, you follow me at, at K Ligris. Um, and so that's, that's one way to sort of, you know, stay engaged. Obviously, um, you know, I, I, try, I try to post a little bit more um, frequently on Twitter than I do everywhere else. Sometimes I'll write something and throw it on Medium or on LinkedIn. Um, and so, you know, feel free to follow me there. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's savvy.com it's uh, savvy with a T. So, you know, we put the technology into savvy. And so, um, that's, uh, that's sort of, uh, you probably know a little bit more about how we, you know, my nephew was named, uh, we, we used to call him savvy growing up. Um, Genesis of the company is from Stavro, which was my dad's name. And, um, the company name Stavro in Greek means cross. So intersection of real estate and technology, um, and so, yeah, you know, follow us there and, uh, excited to, uh, to continue this conversation. Maybe we, uh, drag you onto the upcoming Stavi podcast, which is going to talk really a lot about, you know, fintechs, but giving your background, both in financial services and in credit, and now also marketing and helping people, uh, um, you know, uh, untap that potential. Uh, maybe we can drag you onto a uh, Stavi podcast in the future. I'm always in. I'm, I'm always in. Whatever you tell me, you want me to sharpen pencils? I'm there, Costa. Thanks, brother. I appreciate everything, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.